I'm not good at coming up with stuff off the top of the dome like Shady Katie, Big Shoots, Renner over here. Yeah, Big Shoots has his own luck. So do you want to start this thing? Welcome to the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are talking about Marjorie Orban. And uh, where's this one, Katie? Phoenix, Arizona. Ooh, local. Ooh, the hot city. I don't think people call it that. <laughs> Where did you get your research on, on this episode? This was Dancing with Death by Shanna Hogan. And this is the third one we've done with her books. So Shanna Hogan. So far we've done three. This will be three episodes mm -hmm. with her research. Yes. That's Little. how I found this one because I was like, I wonder if she wrote anything else. So she really and loves. She, did. she likes the Four Corner States. She's from Phoenix, I think. So oh, that's shit. why. The hot city. No, it's still not. You're trying to make it a thing. And just so you guys know that instead of releasing these episodes on Wednesday, we'll be releasing them on Fridays every week. Uh, that'll give us a little more time to edit since we are all very busy, but we do want to be doing the podcast, so we'll record on Saturday and you'll get it the following Friday. Is that right, guys? Yes. That works for me. Oh. Hopefully our many, many, many fandomoniums Oops. don't mind. Yes. October 23rd began as any other day for Robert Aim, who decided to take a shortcut to a local convenience store for a six-pack of beer and cigarettes. On his way home, he spotted a futon mattress and decided to sit down and enjoy a beer. Wait, wait, so on any <laughs> given day... Why is that funny? Day, on, guess, on any given day, this guy could be going to the store for a six-pack and a pack of smokes and just happen upon a futon and just sit down? Well, that looks like just a great place to have a beer. And you just, well, you I sit just down like, on the bed bugs. My whole thing is that he's just like, on this day, it began as any other day. <laughs> it's him going to the store and <laughs> fucking beer, For beer and, and cigarettes. cigarettes. Yeah, he... And it's like, that's where his day begins, is him going to the store and getting beer and cigarettes. The book described him as transient. Okay, so that's exactly how his day began. As he got closer, he noticed a large Rubbermaid tub sealed tightly closed with tape and a layer of plastic sheeting lying under the mattress. Being a curious person, Robert started to unwrap the tub and inside found more plastic tarping. As he dug deeper, he eventually uncovered the headless, limbless torso of a man. That happened to me the other day. Did it? You found a body? Well, you found a torso? I don't know exactly. I didn't dig deep enough. So, unlike this hobo, you stopped digging. <laughs> well, I found this carpet, and it was in the shape of a body. It was under some sketchy wa uh, bridge in Benson. So, you know, we unwrapped it a bit, but the rest of it was pretty buried. Didn't find a body, but it was super wrapped up like someone really didn't want you to get into it. Was it a nice carpet? No. Was it just like a chunk of carpet somebody cut out of their house? Or well, what? I don't know. It was wrapped inside out, and I didn't look at it once I unrolled it. I didn't, like, look at the... Huh. It was all dirty and shit. Might have been white carpet. How would you... It would have to be inside out if you're ripping it out of the floor and rolling it up at the same time. Yeah, that's how they that's how they move carpet, you know, inside out. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm agreeing. Oh, okay. Well, it doesn't seem near as creepy when I tell it to you guys here, but it was creepy at the time because we were like, damn, this is where a place where you find a body. And then we looked down, and then we looked up, and then we looked at each other, and then we we're like, fuck yeah, body time. And then we went down there and we kicked it. <laughs> and it was hard like a body. Mm, I don't think they usually are. I think it was they're wrapped in carpet and dropped. Well, it was in heavy. It was thuddy. This I mean, old. carpet's pretty thuddy. Okay, so yeah, the point is that there was a lot more carpet buried, and we didn't keep digging. Sounds like a carpet dump. Could be. It did have a laptop in it. 
Ooh, you weren't expecting that, were you? I've never heard the story before. No, this is the first time I am also hearing this story. What, really? I thought I told you. <laughs> I know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, so back to it. Guy finds a torso in a plastic bin, unlike Jake, who found nothing but carpet. In the shape of a body. I mean, it's rolled up carpet. What other shape is it going to take? Well, it was pregnant in the middle, like a poorly rolled joint. But you found a laptop, right? It was a pretty nice laptop. Huh. But you didn't keep it? No, I told Aaron to wipe. I told my friend to wipe his fingerprints off of it. Robert immediately ran back to the convenience store and called police, who arrived quickly. The lead investigator on the case was homicide detective David Barnes. At the scene, he spent most of the day searching the area, hoping to find another rubber-made tub containing the head and limbs belonging to the dismembered body. Unfortunately, they would never be found. Yeah, what do you think? There was just a ferry of rubber-made tubs full of body parts? It's weird that they would take all the limbs and arms. Like, what did they do with them? Why wouldn't they just put them in another rubber-made container if that's what they're going to do with the torso? They just left this torso out in the desert underneath a hobo futon. Yes. <laughs> it was like more like a hobo shelter or a hobo abode. Ah. He didn't live there. He just sat down. He just, I think that they He do, saw they a were, mattress and he was like, I'm going to sit down here. Yeah, because he was homeless and it became his home as soon as he sat on it. And was like, oh, It could have just nice been a spot. nice, comfortable place to sleep. Like, don't get me wrong. I've fallen asleep on a park bench before. It was very comfortable <laughs> was it at a, the moment. Was it a bed bug infested mattress in the desert? No, no see, I was always worried homeless. about that, getting bed bugs. The cops stuff. are like, uh, sir, this body's been found at your residence. Detective Barnes was left with the most basic description of his victim, a white male, possibly in his 40s. There's not very many of those around. Two days later, an autopsy was done on the torso. Interestingly, the medical examiner found that while the outer flesh had begun the normal decomposition process, the inner muscle was still relatively fresh. This meant that the body had been frozen for some period before being thawed, precisely dismembered with an electric saw, and placed in the tub and left in the desert. Back at the station, Detective Barnes happened to run across a co-worker who asked what he was working on. When he explained all he knew was that the victim was a white male in his 40s, the detective casually mentioned he was working a missing persons case for a man fitting that description. The detective also said that the missing man's Bronco had just been found abandoned and brought back to the station. Barnes realized that his victim had been found with a set of keys in his pocket, and they decided to test them out. To both detectives' surprise, the keys worked. Bum, bum, bum. They were both working the same case, that of Jay Orban, who had been reporting missing a month earlier. Red flags had been flying high from Jay's wife, Marjorie, and now the case was much more than a missing person. Before we get further into the investigation, we're going to look into Jay and Marjorie's unconventional relationship. Jay Orban was born September 8, 1959, in Phoenix, Arizona. He was one of two sons born to Jake and Joanne Orban, with their eldest son being Jake Jr. Jay had always been an entrepreneur, starting his own landscaping business shortly after graduating high school. Because he had such a strong, friendly personality, Jay's business boomed and was successful until the mid-80s. Once business had slowed to a crawl, Jay bought a comedy club called Chuckles. The club was a huge success for a few years, but Jay eventually began to lose money rapidly and was soon on the verge of bankruptcy. Right before his life fell apart, he found his calling in sales. He found his way into selling wholesale Native American art and jewelry. Jay was suddenly making six figures and living a lavish lifestyle, spending a good portion of his free time at strip clubs. He he ended up making more selling turquoise jewelry than owning a comedy club in the 90s. Wholesale Native American. Wholesale. This was during the whole Southwest boom like across the entire nation where people became obsessed with places like Arizona. 
He casually dated many of the dancers, but never met a woman he truly had feelings for. What? He couldn't find a stripper he loved? That was until 1985, when he met Marjorie Marquis. Is Marquis her stripper name? No, it was actually one of her husband's names that she adopted, and she just kept using it as her stripper name. Okay. She's like, this is a great stripper name. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's Margie actually pretty Marquee. good. That's why I thought it was. Uh, and it's even spelled all fancy. Coming to the main stage, we've got Marjorie Markey. Margie. Margie Markey. Margie. She sounds old. No. See her name's up in the light. It's Miss Markey. Yeah, that's better. Yeah, that's the one. That's a lot better than Margie. <laughs> Nobody's throwing out 20s for Margie. She's having a hip replaced next week. That would be a really good announcer at a strip club. All right, fellas, I want to hear you clap your hands together because coming to the main stage, we got for you Jasmine. That's right, Jasmine to the main stage. Gentlemen, watch your wallets. She's here to steal all of your hearts and all of your money. Jasmine to the main stage. Thank you. Marjorie Crow was born October 29, 1961 in Miami, Florida. Her parents, William and Janelle Crow, divorced when she was three, and her mother remarried to the man Marjorie would consider her father. Ever since she was a small child, Marjorie aspired and practiced to become a professional dancer. At 17, her strict routine faltered when she found out she had severe endometriosis and could not have children. Ooh, I think she's entitled to some sort of financial... <laughs> no. We've already been over this in, I think it was a Jody Arias episode, so if you don't know what that is, you have to listen to that episode first and then come back to this one. She was devastated, but quickly turned it into a carefree attitude, knowing that she was the only one she would ever have to be responsible for. She began dating a man 10 years older than her, who she met while waitressing. She moved with him to Orlando after graduating high school and began dancing, not exotically, at Church Street Station. What is Church Street Station? Church Street Station was kind of like, um, what was that really popular club that all the celebrities went to? Studio 54. Yeah, it was kind of like that, I think. Okay, so it's like the 80s version where it's just cocaine and bad techno house kind of music. They made tons of money, basically. Flock of Seagulls style. And it's just girls dancing like cages or what? I don't know. I can Google it. <laughs> okay. No, it's fine. Continue on. They married when Marjorie was 19, but they were divorced only a year and a half later. After only eight months, Marjorie remarried, and the relationship lasted two years. Once they decided to divorce, before she had even moved out of her soon-to-be ex-husband's home, she was dating someone else. They dated for a year before Marjorie realized he had gambled all of her money away. She broke up with him, but they quickly reconciled and were back together. He somehow convinced her that he had a job lined up in Cincinnati, but they had to stay in Las Vegas for a month while he waited for the position to open up. Three months later, Marjorie again realized he had gambled all of her money away. What? He got her twice? How much was all of her money? Okay, so if your boyfriend gambles all your money away and then is like, hey, we have to move to Las Vegas. Yeah, he's got a system. She was pretty gullible. More gullible than Rory, I would even say. I mean, if there was, honestly, if some stripper wanted to move to Vegas and support my gambling addiction, I'd be okay with that. That's not what she wanted to do. That's just how he was playing the game. See, I don't want to trick anybody into doing that. She I was want also them not to a stripper. Dancer, Yet. I apologize. Yet. Yes. Her aspirations were to be a professional stripper dancer. Just a okay. dancer. Okay, okay, so are we in this, eight, we're in the 80s right now, correct? Or are we in be the in the 90s by now, right? She's 18. She was born in 61. Oh, that's the same year my mom was born. Yeah. That's the only thing that I have an issue with Hogan's books is she does not date anything. So I, at this time, she'd be like 19, 20. She's married. Seems she's like married for right a year and a half. So she's like 22. I think she's like 24. So. Okay, 24. So like 80, 83, somewhere, somewhere in, there. in there. Okay. With nothing to her name, she left to return home to Florida, but her car broke down in Phoenix. 
part she needed was pricey and also needed to be shipped in, so she was stuck. In desperate need of a job, she turned to stripping, something she vowed she would never do. After only a few nights of making 500 to $600 per shift, she realized she'd found her calling. Professional stripper dancing. Only a few nights into her new job, Marjorie met Jay. While he was just another customer to her, he fell head over heels in love immediately. So much so that he began coming to the club six nights a week. It is never good to fall in love with a stripper. Or go to a strip club six nights a week. It's, it's, it's sad. Do you have experience with no, this? No, I've never been to a strip club on any weekday, really. Have you gone six nights out of a seven-day week? I have not. I have gone three nights in one week, but it was with two separate groups of people. I've gone zero nights yeah, Jake in all of my clubs. days. I've been to a bunch of strip clubs, actually. But yeah, Jay would go alone. Yeah, I would never go alone. That's just weird and creepy. But he was, like, really friendly, so I guess he made friends with everybody. I don't know. It's somehow having people around makes it feel less creepy. <laughs> I know what his pickup line was. I know it. What is it? He used to sit around the, the stage, you know, and when the strippers were dancing in front of him or whatever he'd be like dirty mouth try open and then he would just smile up big nope no nope. god damn it no that's a terrible joke i don't want it in there yes. no katie yes. why did you let just go just go that was kind of funny after making friends and buying her drinks jay asked her out but she declined a few more nights of getting to know each other later Marjorie relented and went on a date with him. She still wasn't feeling any connection, but Jay offered her to stay in a spare room in his home to save money, and she agreed. He continued to fall more in love, and she continued to be uninterested. They did become intimate at one point, but did not fully have sex, and it caused Marjorie to realize just how uninterested she was. She moved back to Florida not long after. What do you mean they didn't actually have sex? Fully have sex? From what I understood in the book, he finished really quickly. Oh, so he had sex. Yeah. Premature ejaculation. I think so. It didn't, I mean, like, fully describe their night together. Once in Fort Lauderdale, Marjorie's ex showed up and convinced her to get back together. They married, but only for a month. She really flies in and out of marriages. Two months later, she was married again, this time for two years. By now, she was dancing in and fully managing a traveling burlesque show, which took up 100% of her time and attention. She stayed single for a short stint, then met an extremely wealthy 56-year-old and moved to New Jersey to marry him. In what she thought was a romantic gesture, he signed his construction company and all of its assets into her name. In reality, he had not been paying his taxes and owed a significant amount of money to the IRS, which Marjorie was now responsible for. Oh, it's like reverse gold digging. <laughs> She realized she was being scammed and left, but not before it was too late. Dun, 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 dun. Old Margie got stuck in the scam. Back again in Florida, she started a romantic relationship with a man who she'd known for years named Michael Peter. He is basically the man responsible for the popularity and look of any modern-day strip club, opening the first few that were clean, comfortable, and somewhat decent to work for, and turning them into an empire. Marjorie and Michael were engaged for a few weeks, but realized their relationship wasn't working and ended things. She ended up back in Nevada and became a Vegas showgirl. A year later, Jay Orban called her. Is a showgirl a stripper? No. No. They just dance around with their booties the out? Big headdresses and like... Ah, uh, yeah. Sometimes their boobies are out. I said Yeah, but booties. they usually have pasties and stuff on. He told her he was still deeply in love with her even after 10 years and had been searching the phone books in every city he visited looking for her number. They began talking on the phone every night, and this time Marjorie did begin to catch feelings. She had been married and divorced six times and was finally ready to settle down with a man who actually loved her, not just how she looked. Six times? She's like 35 maybe or so? 
At the 34. most, probably. Jesus Christ. She visited him in Phoenix, and he proposed to her the day she was supposed to leave. She said no. She said, nah, lucky number seven? I don't think so. In 1995, Jay visited her in Vegas and promised her if she agreed to marry him, he would do whatever necessary and spend however much it took to fulfill her dream of being a mother. This time she agreed, and they eloped July 22, 1995. She quickly gave up dancing and moved to Phoenix to be a housewife, fully supported by Jay. Even through all of this, Marjorie still did not have feelings for her new husband. She told him that she would stick around for two years, and if by the end of it she did not have a child, she would leave him. It's quite matter-of-fact about it. She's kind of cold. Yeah. IVF treatment proved to be much more difficult than she could have imagined. She had a total of seven surgeries, had to take five daily hormone treatments, and had painful fluid buildups in her abdomen that required ER visits. After months of no success, Marjorie realized that she actually did love Jay and told him she would stay, baby or not. But in late 1995, she found out she was pregnant, and Noah Orban was born August 26, 1996. So somewhere in there, she was like the Grinch, and her heart grew like three sizes, and then she's like, oh, I'll stick around no matter what. With the baby she always wanted, Marjorie's life could not have been any more perfect. She was a stay-at-home mom with a $500 a week allowance from her husband, who would give her any amount of money she needed if the $500 wasn't enough. Jay was just as thrilled with the new baby as Marjorie, and he cut down his time traveling so he could spend more time with his family. He has to be remembered as Noah's dad by all of his customers, who were shown photos of the boy every time they saw Jay. As he grew older, Jay picked back up traveling his normal amount two weeks out of every month. This began to put a strain on his and Marjorie's marriage, which was weak to begin with. Their only shared interest was Noah, they never spent time alone together, and never had sex or even touched each other. Despite how odd this may sound for a marriage, they were both happy with their arrangement and seemed to outsiders like the perfect couple. Once Noah was old enough, Marjorie put him into karate classes and began to make friends. She told the woman she was closest to that her marriage was a sham, she only married Jay for the money, they needed fertility treatment because Jay was sterile, she had Jay's genes altered so much during fertility treatment that he was barely Noah's father, Jay had a small penis and couldn't satisfy her, he was controlling, if she didn't follow his rules he would throw her out into the streets, and he had a girlfriend in Tucson. <laughs> She's, and then her friend was just like, uh... Yeah, it is hot in here for a karate match. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like, what the fuck? Along with all of her shit-talking, Marjorie also began to let her crazy side show. When one woman's child was better than Noah in class, she started harassing them both so they would leave and Noah would be the best again. Oh, she, man, that's crazy. She started by spreading rumors, then graffitied the woman's home, then finally printed over 200 copies of a letter she'd written degrading the woman and hugged them all over the studio. Well, you know what they say. You can take the stripper out of the strippy. I don't think they say that. But you can't put their clothes back on. <laughs> By 2003, Marjorie started seriously talking about leaving Jay. Her one concern was that she absolutely had to have full custody. She began telling her friends if he were to even get partial custody, she would quote-unquote take care of him. She also liked how to mention how if something were to happen to Jay, she would get his million-dollar life insurance payout. Jay was completely oblivious to Marjorie's unhappiness and to the fact that she began having an affair. Marjorie's new love interest was a 19-year-old that taught at the karate studio Noah attended. She had known him since he was 14, but only became interested when her best friend started dating him. That is, uh, creepy. Super creepy. She known him since he was 14. That's the first creepy part. She quickly seduced him, but their fling only lasted until March 2004, when he started feeling guilty about cheating on his girlfriend and broke it off. 
In retaliation, she called her best friend and told her he was cheating, hoping she would dump him and he would come back to Marjorie. Oh, his girlfriend was her best friend. Yeah. Oh, the plot thickens. It's like a fucking, it's real dramatic up in here. Real dramatic. When this didn't work, Marjorie started stalking her best friend, calling her 10 to 20 times a day, usually yelling about how she had had sex with her boyfriend. So this might be a good time to ask, what kind of um, issues does old Margie have? I don't know. It's hard to tell. I think she was a narcissist. Probably. Once she finally moved on, Marjorie met another man at the gym in the summer of 2004. His name was Larry Weisberg, and they quickly hit it off and began spending time together. Marjorie told Larry that she had been divorced for seven years, but still lived in Jay's home, just without him. After they'd been dating a few weeks, Larry came over to the home and realized Jay was still very much living there. Marjorie backtracked and told him she'd asked Jay to move out, and he had agreed. By August, they were talking about moving in together, as Larry was spending a good portion of his time at Marjorie and Jay's house while he was out of town on business. So Jay's out selling turquoise, and Marjorie's just hoeing it up Mm -hmm. at the house. Sounds about right. It's pretty fucked up, but you know what they say. Jay's final business trip began on August 27th. Once a year, he would take a three-week trip rather than two to drive all the way to Florida. He arrived in Pensacola on September 1st, but only stayed until the 3rd. Hurricane Francis was brewing off the coastline, and all of Florida was preparing to be hit by a Category 4 storm. Jay realized that no one would be willing to do any business at that time, so he returned around and headed back for Phoenix. What Jay didn't know is that Hurricane Marjorie was waiting for him. (laughs) He arrived in Tucson on the 7th, checking into a hotel for the 9th and leaving early on the 8th, his 45th birthday. Jay stopped at his warehouse once he was back in Phoenix and used his computer until around 5 p.m. He bought a few things from a gas station near his house, then disappeared. On September 9th, Marjorie called Noah out sick from school and took him shopping at Target. There, she spent $480 charged to Jay's credit card, buying cleaning supplies and other miscellaneous items. The next day, she spent another $200 at Lowe's, using what she bought to epoxy the garage floor and paint the walls. On the 13th, she spent over a grand at Home Depot, Walmart, and Great Indoors. On the 14th, she bought a $1,100 water fountain and $1,200 worth of clothing. Over the next couple of days, she spent another $3,100, all being charged to Jay's credit card. She told concerned friends and family that Jay was on a detour business trip in New Mexico and would be home on the 20th. At the home, Marjorie packed all of Jay's clothing and belongings into boxes and stored them in the garage to make room for Larry to move in with her. They enjoyed playing husband and wife until the 20th, the day Jay was supposedly returning from his trip. So is it safe to say that Jay was already dead and she bought all that stuff to cover up, like, all the stuff from Home Depot and everything to cover up the murder scene? Seven people got phone calls from Jay's cell phone between 127 and 144 that afternoon, but no one was there. Serious panic had set in with everyone in Jay's life except Marjorie. Even Noah was worried that his dad wasn't home, and when he asked where he was, Marjorie told him, quote, Something horrible must have happened to your dad. He could have been hurt by some very bad people. Jesus. Pretty ominous thing to say to your kid. Yeah, she was, like, always in this weird thing that saying his business was super dangerous and sketchy, and then being on the road, he was going to get injured somehow. Like, not car accident, like, someone was going to rob him. Any day, somebody could rob him of his thousands of dollars of turquoise dangerous business yeah that's literally basically what she said he you know, did carry turquoise a, pirates right 
He did carry a ton of merch in his car, but, like... Two days later, Jay's brother, Jake Jr., called Marjorie looking for any new information. Marjorie said she had been calling everyone looking for him, which she hadn't. When Jake asked how Noah was handling things, Marjorie said, quote, Noah knows his dad is missing and might not come home anymore. He knows that there are terrible people out there, and his dad would want him to be strong. Jake realized then that something wasn't right about the way Marjorie was acting, and he finally convinced her to report him missing to the police. Detective Jan Butcher was put on the case, and she also noticed immediately that Marjorie wasn't acting right. When she asked about their relationship, Marjorie referred to it as more of a friendship and also went into detail about how he had no sex drive and couldn't satisfy her. During another phone call on the 28th, Marjorie told Butcher, quote, and past being emotional about Jay. She also accidentally let it slip that she and Jay were not actually married. When the IRS came looking for Marjorie for the debt she owed from her ex-husband's company, her and Jay got divorced so his assets wouldn't be seized. They were the only two that knew their little secret and had never planned to actually tell anyone. So, does that mean she didn't get his life insurance money? She no. can still be the beneficiary. Yeah, she was a beneficiary. Oh, right, right, right. You don't have to be married. Yeah, but you can't. If you don't know that someone's dead, you can't collect their life insurance. Detective Butcher was now certain she had a homicide on her hands rather than a missing person. She located Jay's Bronco fairly quickly, as it had been reported abandoned on the 19th after being left sitting in a neighborhood. Once it was stickered, what neighbors described as a blonde woman in her 40s came and moved the truck to where it was found and reported abandoned again on the 25th. Its final move was to an apartment complex parking lot, where Detective Butcher towed it to the station for evidence collection. While this was going on, Marjorie and Larry were out on another shopping spree, this time buying a $10,000 grand piano. That night, while they hung out and watched TV, SWAT officers burst through the door and took the two of them into custody. The home was searched top to bottom, but absolutely no evidence was found and neither Marjorie or Larry wanted to talk. They were both released and the case went cold. Detective Butcher called Marjorie only once over the next few weeks, but during that phone call she offhandedly mentioned that if Jay's body was never found, she would have to wait seven years before collecting his life insurance. Oddly dun, enough, dun, dun, dun. oddly enough, a little over a week later, Jay's headless, limbless torso was found in the desert. Once the case was transferred from Detective Butcher to Detective Barnes, Marjorie and Larry were surprised by another visit from the SWAT team. This time, they searched Jay and Marjorie's house, Larry's house, and Jay's warehouse. Traces of blood were found at the warehouse, and an open package of saw blades with two missing were interesting, but not enough evidence to prove murder. What kind of saw blades? Like reciprocating saws? Sawzalls? That's probably the best thing to take a head off with. Yeah, I don't know. It just said electric saws. Rory, what kind of saw would you use to take a head off with? Whatever one was at hand. If I had my selection, though, I'd probably get some sort of bone saw from an operating room. Bone saw is ready. Yep, just remove it real quick. Are bone saws quick? Yeah. Alright, alright. I'm going to support that message. They're literally made to cut through bone and nothing else. That's oh. the thing, though, is bone saws don't cut through skin. Yeah, that's good. good what point. if you could get a dual-purpose Sawzall blade that cuts through skin and I mean, bones? I mean, a regular fucking pruning blade would work. Yeah? Sawzall is probably the way to go. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I've got a pretty good Sawzall. They, it was definitely something electric because they were really precise. Because usually when you use a handsaw, you, like, get halfway through and there's marks in the bone where you started. And then, like, lost your grip and had to start in another spot. Skipped around. Barnes's biggest find was in Jay's credit card statements. While looking through the outrageous purchases made by Marjorie, 
He noticed that the same credit card had been used in Tucson on the 8th to pay for Jay's hotel room. He called the bank and only a single card was issued to the account, meaning Marjorie absolutely had to have seen Jay between the 8th and 9th and taken the card. During her interrogation while SWAT searched her home, Marjorie was informed Jay's body had been found. She was completely void of emotion and did not seem shocked by the news. The only thing that made her cry was when she was told all of Jay's bank accounts had been frozen. What a bitch. Gold digger through and through. She continued to refuse to say she knew anything, so she was let go. Barnes continued to look for evidence against her and found it in Jay's cell phone records. All of the seven calls made from his cell phone on September 20th had been made from either Larry's home or his work. It was possible that it was either him or Marjorie making the calls. On November 13th, Marjorie went to Circuit City and attempted to buy a laptop with Jay's credit card. Barnes had them all flagged, knowing Marjorie would try to use one eventually and that he could arrest her and hopefully get her talking. The clerk called the cops, and Marjorie was arrested and taken to jail. In another genius detective move, Barnes had another cop interrogate her and pretend like he had no idea who Barnes was. Marjorie put on a good show, saying she had no idea why the accounts were flagged and she had permission to use the cards. When he told her it was because the cardholder was deceased, she went into a rant about how Barnes had told Jay's family it was 100% his body, even though they hadn't run the DNA, which according to her was extremely irresponsible. She still gave up no information and was released from the jail at 3 a.m. Barnes next went to Marjorie's friends, specifically Sharon, the woman who was dating the 19-year-old Marjorie had an affair with. She told Barnes that Marjorie had mentioned killing Jay multiple times, even once saying, quote, No one will ever take Noah from me. I'd kill them. They would find themselves without a head, wrapped in a blanket in the desert. Well, I mean, he ended up in a futon mattress, but same thing. The final piece of evidence needed to arrest Marjorie came from Malo's receipt. While looking through all of her purchases, they found that she had purchased two large Rubbermaid tubs, and they had very clear surveillance video of her doing so. This is why you have to go green and throw out your receipts. To make it even better, the company told Barnes that the type of tub she bought was only sold at Lowe's, and the store she purchased it from was one of the few in Phoenix that sold them. With this, Marjorie was arrested for first-degree murder on December 6, 2004. Damn, that's crazy. They caught her through a receipt, basically. I mean, there was other evidence, but that was pretty much a nail in the coffin. Something damning, yeah. You, they were like, this is it. Here are the tubs you bought that are only sold in the stores that you bought them at that ended up with the torso in them. <laughs> so did they find the other tub? I mean, everyone assumes that the other tub has the rest of him in it, and it was never found. Well, I'll tell you where it is. That's a good assumption. It's in a freezer. No, because the body was cut after it was frozen, so it started in the freezer. Yeah, he was pulled out and cut up. Murdered, frozen, thawed, and then you can't, it's hard to really cut through a body when it's frozen solid. The other tub's probably in a desert, even more remote than, because I assume that she dumped the torso there, because one, it was the heaviest part of him and harder for her to carry out somewhere that was super, super remote. Two, it's really hard to identify a torso. Like, if you have no hands, no teeth, no anything identifying. Oh, I was going to say, I could be like, that's a torso. I mean, a torso is literally, like, nothing evidence-wise. You just pretty much have a cold case on that's your hands at that point. That's why everyone should get tattooed thoroughly on your torso. <laughs> if so, I ever find a torso with a bunny rab- baby bunny rabbit in a bear trap just bleeding out, I'll know that it's Rory's torso. Yeah, I do have some distinguishing tattoos. But yeah, so I'm sure the head and the hands and everything that could have identified him were somewhere very, very far away. Somewhere out there, there's a tub. Maybe it's buried a little bit. It's got some man soup in it. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's just disgusting. Nobody wants to hear the words man soup come across these airwaves, Rory. Marjorie adjusted to life in jail quickly and began dating women in her cell block. She also made good friends with her sallies and began to open up to them about what had happened. So she really did start going by Margie. <laughs> One woman, named Sophia, came forward and said Marjorie had told her, quote, I did it, and he was shot. When she asked where the rest of Jay's body was, Marjorie replied, let's just say the dogs ate good that week. Ooh. And then when they went and asked Marjorie about this, she's like, no, 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 I said if I did it. Dogs can't eat face bones. Yeah. They can't? I mean, they probably could, but... She also said that there was Dobermans, or she had Dobermans, something about the Dobermans eating the rest of him when she only had a little tiny Shih Tzu. (laughs) I mean, I'd be inclined to think a Shih Tzu would eat a human, but couldn't eat all of it. Yeah, like, why would you feed a head and hands to dogs? I feel like the rest of the body would be the easy part to feed them. I would feed dogs hands. That seems pretty, pretty good. That seems pretty smart. Too many small bones they could break up, choke on. Well, can you feed pigs' hands? Yeah, pigs can eat anything. You only remove the teeth and the fingernails to help with digestion. What if they drop a bone? Like, do pigs, do they just pick everything up? Pigs have the power to crunch through bones, no problem. Yeah, but what if they drop one and then they don't eat it and you get caught off of it? Then you're Willie Picton. She even went as far as describing dismembering Jay, saying she used a jigsaw and all of his blood drained out and his guts were hanging out. Jigsaw. I was wondering. That does. That's not what I would have picked at all, but... No, it seems like a terrible thing. Yeah, you've only got, like, what, two and a half, three-inch blades sticking out of the bottom of a jigsaw? She yeah. probably used a different type of saw and only knew the word jigsaw, so... Yeah, makes sense. Right. I, I like to do it on a table saw, with the blade all the way up. By mid-March, Marjorie had a new story for detectives. Apparently, Jay had come home unexpectedly on his birthday and was met by Larry, who confronted him. A fight ensued, and Larry ended up accidentally shooting and killing Jay. He took care of the body and Bronco and threatened to kill Marjorie and Noah if she told anyone what had happened. So she's trying to turn it around on Larry now. Yes. This charlatan. Detectives and the county attorney knew she was lying and offered Larry full immunity if he testified against her. With him on the stand saying he didn't do it, the defense wouldn't be able to point the finger at some mystery man. The trial was postponed multiple times until it finally began on January 29, 2009. The prosecution took a major hit when Detective Barnes was placed on administrative leave and had his home searched for undisclosed reasons. Without the man who'd spent five years preparing a case solely on circumstantial evidence, it looked like Marjorie may get away with it. Things only got worse when the county attorney broke his ankle during a hiking accident and had to be rushed to the ER for emergency surgery. He realized he could not continue and step down as the prosecutor on the case. Sounds like Marjorie has voodoo dolls. Yeah, like she's doing some weird magic. Yeah, or she's just sticking them like, fuck this DA, fuck this DA. The new attorney was given only two weeks to prepare, but was able to read all 10,000 discovery files and 2,000 pages of prior testimony in that time and got the trial back on track. Eight months after it began, the jury was finally able to deliberate. After only seven hours, Marjorie Orban was found guilty of first-degree murder of her husband, Jay Orban. Two weeks later, they decided against the death penalty, and Marjorie was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Damn. She almost got away with it if she hadn't been so greedy. Fuck this gal. Fuck this lady. <laughs> you gotta say gal, Roar. Alright, so is that it for Marjorie Orpin? Where's she at now? What is she... Is she dead? No, she ain't dead. She's, um, looks like shit. Prison isn't doing, doing her any favors. All right, guys, thank you for listening. 
Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R, cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast and on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast. And, of course, if you want to head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rate and review, follow us on Spotify, and uh, we'll be more than happy to send you guys one of our fancy custom stickers that hold up extremely well to this harsh four-corner sun. And what are we doing next week, Katie? Next week we are doing Robert Fisher, which was recommended by Jermaine, who was the same one that recommended the Jody Arias episode. Dang, and he get he should have two stickers and we can't even get him one? No, I got him to him. Nice. All right. So, so he got two. Good looking out, Jermaine. Thanks for the uh, episode ideas. And uh, yeah, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And uh, have a good week. Have a good one. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers. And uh, being a curious fellow, he dug through it. Mm-hmm. And bingo, bango, there's a torso.